Hi, this is Elliot Randall, welcoming you to one of my favorite programs. It's the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Check it out. It's happening. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 191 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Chuck Rainey, a great bass player and a studio musician extraordinaire. He's played over a thousand recording sessions. He's made dozens and dozens of hit records. He's revered for his legendary work in the 60s and 70s with so many great artists of that era. Aretha, the Jackson Five, Roberta Flack, Quincy Jones, to name just a few. His playing on their hits define that era, and they're etched into the soundtrack of our lives. In the Songfest portion of the show, and I always do a Songfest with my musician guests, we're going to play and talk about Chuck's work and his relationships with all those iconic artists. And you're going to hear the inside story of what it's like to be a session musician from one of the great masters. And for my featured song, and I always feature one of my songs in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And in this instance, I decided on the song Catch You Later from the Spring Dance album by my band Project Grand Slam. May not be as funky as Chuck Rainey, but I think it's close enough. So Chuck Rainey, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Oh, thank you, my man. It's great to be here. And I thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Absolutely. You know, in looking over your history, I found something that's really interesting to me. You started out on the trumpet, didn't you? Oh, yes. My first instrument was a trumpet. It's amazing how many bass players started out on the trumpet. Oh, Did yeah. You, Paul McCartney started on the trumpet. Jimmy Haslip from the Yellow Jacket started on the trumpet. I started out on the trumpet. What is it? I think it's the, uh, the top and the bottom. <laughs> the top and the bottom. I think you're right. You know, the only reason I became a bass player is because when I taught myself guitar and bass, this was in the early 60s, none of my friends knew how to read the treble clef, and I already knew treble clef from the trumpets. I said, okay, I'll volunteer to, to learn the bass. That's how I became a bass player. Wow. What about you? How'd you become a bass player? Well, oh, that's really a long story. Give me the short version. <laughs> I always um, tried. I was always fooling around playing tuba parts for my trumpet. Okay. Um, I didn't like the upright bass uh, because I, I couldn't take it home. Uh, it was too fragile. And, and playing the trumpet in the orchestra in high school, I was always listening to the tuba. The tuba was always more in my mind than playing anything. So I kind of think that uh, I know a lot of bass players, by the way, too, that played the trumpet first. Lee Scalar, I think, played the trumpet at one time. Okay. Uh, I just kind of think it's the top 
and the bottom. And the bottom's listening to the top, and the top is listening to the bottom. <laughs> That's the best explanation I've heard. But but the bass has always been in my mind. It's always been very prevalent to me, the bass drum. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the, the tuba in particular. You know, it, it's uh it's always been in my mind. And it just happened chance. I was in uh, in college, I didn't like the band. I didn't like the marching band because I was spoiled. I came from Ohio and all great marching bands. And so I wanted to quit the band, which was not a good idea for my mom and pop. And so the baritone horn, there was a vacancy in the brass ensemble. And the baritone horn, I was all with the same valve, three valves, and except that it's a bass clef instrument, but they wrote all the parts in the brass ensemble in the treble clef. Uh-huh. So I just read it like I was playing the, you know, the trumpet. Later on as a bass player, I remember being having a problem when I was in Eddie James's band and then we started doing theaters. And the first theater we did was the Apollo Theater in New York. And I knew all her songs. I'd been in the band for about a year, but I realized that with the orchestra now, the arrangements have been changed. And the very first song was that last, and it started out with bass, piano, and drums. Uh-huh. About the th- five seconds into the song, everybody knew that I could not read the bass clef. <laughs> I never had to. So that was a learning experience right there. I can imagine. You know, but I never applied a written notation to the electric bass. Now, of course, I lost the gig because of that, but I did learn how to read because of that. It taught you a lesson, huh? Taught me a big lesson. I can imagine. You know, my father played the trumpet too, and he had something called a valve trombone that he used oh, yeah. to play. So that was like a trumpet because it had the three valves, but it was a trombone. So it had that bottom, you know, uh, sound to it. Well, you must be a young guy. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot remember uh, all through high school, college. I think the first time I saw uh, uh, a valve trombone, I was in my 20s. Really? All that I never seen. I thought it was very odd to see one like that. You know, I've never seen one ever since. My my dad had one, but I never saw one after that. All right. So listen, you came up during the great era of music. I mean, just a wonderful era. And I want to get right into it with you because you had so many great artists that you worked with. So we're playing right now underneath this discussion. One of my favorite songs of all time, Rock Steady with Aretha on vocals. I mean, your bass part was just outstanding on that song. Tell us a little bit about the session, the song, the whole thing. Give me your recollections. Well, Ross said it, um, uh, it was recorded in the Criteria in Miami, and it was in the winter. And um, everybody in the crew in the rhythm section, we enjoyed going down to Miami in the winter, if you know what I mean. Yep. And um, 
we were housed in one place and uh, Tommy Dowd and Arif Martin and Jerry Wexler and uh, maybe whoever, whoever else was there other than the band, they were staying someplace else. And so we were picked up and brought to the studio and none of the big brass were there. So Aretha taught us the song. So it was her song? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Rocksteady, oh for sure. Okay. One of the very few songs that she wrote. Anyway, Gene Paul was the second engineer and Gene was in the studio. So once we learned the song, he just recorded a demo. We just played it. Uh-huh. When he recorded a demo. So when Jerry Wexler got there with uh, Tommy Dowd and whoever else came with them, Arif had to, number one, chart the song because he's the dedicated orchestrator or, you know, arranger. And so he has to know what's going on. And as you listen to Rocksteady, you know that it's easy. By the way, for everybody that's listening, all the guys that Chuck is talking about were from Atlantic Records because that was the label that Aretha was on. Absolutely. Go ahead. So... We spent all morning working on Rocksteady. Jerry Wexler being the producer, and we just played it over and over, we tried this, we tried that. They tried everything. So you didn't have that, that, that final kind of vibe until sometime after you began? Is that the deal? Well, the rhythm section, we had it. <laughs> but of course, when it gets to a producer and a ranger and other people that are around. They got to schmutz it up. We could not do anything better to it to make it sound right. Uh -huh. So what the public is hearing is the demo that we made before the producer and the head engineer got to the studio. Isn't that something? All, all they did was take it back to New York, add percussion, and King Curtis added um, a, a horn solo and uh, and and, and uh, the, the horns. But we couldn't get the, we could not get past the demo. <laughs> So what was it like working with Aretha? You know, she's in the heyday of her career right then. Mm. Well, it was great. I didn't like the movie because Aretha was not, was not that way. Jennifer Hudson is a great singer, true. But Hollywood sort of destroys a lot of things about a lot of people by adding stuff that they don't need to add or taking something away or putting in the script things that didn't happen. So I didn't like the movie because Aretha was not at all that way. She was very quiet. She was never vocal. She very seldom had any interaction with the band really? about, mu about music. Uh -huh. all, the all the interaction that she had was social. But when it came to music, she had always had a band leader you know, with the orchestra. And we rehearsed, the rhythm section did, basically did, recorded all the music that we did for three years on stage. So we knew her, we were a team, unless she was teaching us a song. Like First Snow and Kokomo, she wrote that. Rocksteady, she wrote that. All right, so t talk to me on Rocksteady. She wrote the song, you're in the studio with her. Is she at least telling you this is the vibe, this is the feel, or is she giving you some any kind of direction on it? Oh, of course, it's just not she plays it. Okay. She plays it and she sings it. And you know, being close to her, uh, uh, that kind of that particular rhythm section, you know, we learned the song in about maybe ten minutes. <laughs> you know, and just laid down a track, yeah, so that Jerry Wexner and Tommy Dowd or whoever else 
will be, you know, something to work from, like with Steely Dan. A lot of times they just want a track, then they take that one track and they work on it or yeah. try to make it better or add to it. But isn't that ironic that you 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 laid down that demo right away? They went through all the other stuff and they came back to the demo. Yeah, when you listen to it, Robert, you can kind of tell it's a demo. If you listen to it, you can tell that it's a, uh, although I would say this, most rhythm sections that play together all the time, we not only did her music, but we also did a lot of other artists' music. And so we had a way of thinking, like a swarm of bees or a swarm of ants. Right. It's sort of kind of used to one another. Right. And the Rock City was like a, a first pass on a, on a demo on a song. I've got to tell you this, Chuck. It didn't sound like a demo to me. I mean, it sounds like perfection. Well, uh, we, we thought so. But coming out of New York City uh, with our career, with our careers in New York, we did that a few times. Uh, not with Aretha, but with other people. The way we were doing a whole album project in one day. Uh, because of the cohesiveness of the rhythm section yeah. and wanting to get things done, you know, get things done. You know, the New York scene is not like a Hollywood scene. I mean, isn't that something you could do an album in a day? Now, you know, they take months to do albums. It's just kind of crazy, huh? Well, when you have dedicated studio musicians, you know that what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to play something that sounds like it's organized. Yep. You know, rather than just play what you want to play although that's what we want to do but that particular rhythm section is very very special and you were working with bernard purdy a lot i assume yes yeah bernard cornell cornell dupree yep great players great players okay let's move on because we got a lot of songs to cover here you mentioned steely dan and uh, one of the songs that you picked out for this uh, song fest is peg which of course is one of their great hits Tell us a little bit the backstory on that one. Every time I tell, I've, tell, I've told it a lot, but every time I tell the story, it's very interesting because I forget how it started, uh, but ask about it. Jeff Carroll was the drummer that I worked with a lot in LA. Uh, and he was the original drummer with Stilly Dan, but he had signed a deal with um, Warner Brothers with, um, for a while, you gotta help me out here, Robert. With Toto, you mean? Yeah, with Toto. But he was of the of the main people that went in the Steely Dan, the original band. Jeff always stayed close to Walter and Donald, and so Jeff did a lot of demos uh, for Walter and Donald for the Steely Dan project. And although he's never aired on any of them, he was there a lot. And on this particular session, well, their format was is to have the rhythm section play the music. After they heard the demo, or Larry Carlton or someone has written out chord charts. But as we were playing, they're only listening for a drum track. They're not really paying attention to anything else other than trying to get a good groove or solid drum track. 
and we're talking about Peg now. Right. So uh, I knew, and I have been around them for a, couple, a few years now, and so I know how they are. Donald did not <clears throat> always avoid slapping, and I knew that he always wanted me to avoid slapping the bass. Okay. That's a technique that some bass players use on certain things where they, they kind of hit it with their thumb and their fingers and sounds more percussive, just explaining that to the audience. There you go. Like if you listen to a lot of Billy Preston's hits during the time, Lewis Johnson was playing that. Yeah. Larry Graham. Larry Graham from... Uh, was, was, was playing that technique. Right, with... with uh, I'm, sorry, I'm trying to blank on Larry. He was with Graham Central Station, but before that... He was with uh, Sly, right? Sly and the Family Stone. That's it. Sly and Family Stone. So anyway, usually in sessions like this, we'll, we only did two songs basically a day. And one song would take a whole session of three hours, like, like 12 to 3. Uh -huh. Maybe once entertain one song. And then from 3 to 6, entertain another one. So like after you spend about maybe 45 minutes or an hour getting a drum track and we're learning, we're learning the song and getting used to the song, the rest of the players, every time we got to the bridge and Jeff was playing, because they stopped a lot. Like this, try this, do this, do this. And Jeff would always put an air base on his chest. And if it, when we get to the bridge, it's raining. <laughs> do something, huh? You know, you know, he wanted you know, to slap it. He heard what I heard. And so I decided to go ahead and do it because I knew that they were not listening to me. And the way I slap the bass is not like other bass players. And like I'm a uh, advocate of the upright bass. I don't play it, but I watched Milt Hinton, Slam Stewart. I didn't watch Slam Stewart, but hearing them slap that wood bass, you know, the, right. the bass violin. So my tone has always been darker rather than Tinty, right? When it comes to slapping the bass, so I would slap the bass, uh, the bass on paper. And now I'm getting my parts together while they're listening to a uh, drum track, and whoever the guitar player is, he's listening, getting his parts together, what he's going to play, because the basic track is what they start from. Because we've overdubbed all those tracks a thousand times, mm. but you have to start with something that they can start with, you know, and so. After they, after they decided on a drum track, Jeff leaves, goes in the studio, orders food or whatever the case may be. Now, the rest of the rhythm section were playing to the drum track. But when it got to the bridge, I did not slap the bass because I knew that Donald did not care for it. He did not want it. And so after a couple of passes on the song, he was saying, well, it doesn't feel the sound the same or feel the same as it was when you were playing with Jeff. And Jeff said, that's because he's slapping the bass. <laughs> um, so now he said, well, so Donald or Gary or somebody said, okay, well, let's, let's hear what you were playing when we were recording the drum track. Uh -huh. And so I slapped the bass, you know, I slapped the part. And so they said, well, let's keep it because it did sound interesting and different. Good. You know, so that's a short story on, on how that part, you see, coming out of New York, I got to tell everybody, now New York, to me, I was born and raised east of Mississippi. And New York City is the place where you learn what not to do, what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, no matter what profession you're in, because everybody in New York is different. And in LA, you sort of kind of have time to fool around with a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a lot of this, a little bit of this. Whereas in New York, you have to keep 
get things done. More business. More business. Also, too, is so congested in a small space, Manhattan is, that 10 to 1 means 10 to 1, unless you want to pay overtime. Right. You know, it's funny, Elliot Randall, who's a mutual friend of ours, was telling me the story about when he recorded that famous solo that he did in Reeling in the Years. He was out in L.A., and the studio didn't have any amplifiers. Right. That all the guys right. out there would card in the amplifiers, as opposed to New York City, where all the studios had plenty of amplifiers. That's a crazy difference. Yeah. Well, in New York City, we had a bass club and a guitar club. And if you did a lot of sessions, you put an amplifier, which was usually a B-15, Ampeg B-15. That was my original amplifier. You buy one and you put it in a studio that didn't have one. Uh-huh. And you put a lock on it. You put a lock on it. And then you give all the other members of the bass club the combination. <laughs> I see. You know, so we all had the amps. Uh, in L.A., L.A. was a little different. In L.A., you had to have a carter service. You had to have a carter service. Because studios, like you said, and Elliot said, did not have amplifiers. So when you call a musician, he called his carter service to bring his amp. A guitar player to bring his many guitars. Or call a drummer to bring a thousand cymbals. <laughs> it was the way they did things. This seems like a crazy way to do it. All right, listen, let's move on, because you got so many great people that you play with. Tell me a little bit what it was like working with the Jackson 5. You did Dancing Machine with them. never saw them a lot of uh, a lot of artists get their records done by an arranger or a producer and they don't they're not in the studio the jackson five were not in the studio dancing machine was done by the producer and a ranger who basically was a chord chart i remember working for jermaine jackson on his first album and he was in the studio but with the jackson five very, very interesting uh, they had a producer that I didn't particularly care for. Now, when I say that, is I'm like anybody else. There are certain people you don't care for. Uh-huh. And like a lot of people you work for, they don't care for you, whatever the situation is. And, uh, and doing Dancing Machine, he had an entourage in the control room, which I've always been not, and I not care for that. Because the job is between you, the arranger, and the producer and the engineer. When you have guests and people, now you, it's like now you have to put on a certain. Yeah, you're doing a show for oh, them. I'm doing a show. Yeah. And he did not want to hear the bass for the first two choruses. He wanted the bass to come in toward the middle of the song, which is ridiculous. We told him, all you got to do is, if you don't want to hear the bass, pull the slider down. Meaning the volume. The volume. So, because you never can know, just always have it there. Right. But no, he was showboating, I think. And uh, he didn't want me to play until a certain time. So, work for hire, you know, I don't play. And about two weeks later, I got a call from Motown, 
wanted me to come back. He said, what happened to the base? <laughs> right. well, the, well, the thing was that the producer decided that he shouldn't have done it that way. Yeah. You know, and he tried to, well, actually, maybe it wasn't a week, two weeks later, maybe a week later. So for about a month, I got two or three calls from the contractor in Motown to come back and to finish the track or do the track. And I refused to go because I was not that close to the contractor or the producer. I was not a Motown fan. I was there problems going to Motown. Basically. Really? Oh, yeah. I want to hear about that, too. Well, you know, I'll only go so far in that things are different. You know, like I came out of New York and just going to LA, things are a little bit different. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> I never went back until finally one day I came to my apartment. I lived deep into a very large complex and the producer's card was uh, in my door. He said, please call. So now enough is enough. You know, when the producer now calls and wants me to call him, I call him professionally to give him a call. And told me that he made a mistake and a blonde, blonde, blonde. He had tried two or three other bass players to, to, to put something on the track. Back in those days, they were cutting tape. You know what I mean? They were cutting tape. It was very difficult to take the bass track or style from the back end of the song and put it into the first part of the song. Right. The editing process was completely different. Completely. So I agreed to come back and we got it done. Um, but I did enjoy the session. I did enjoy the song. Fabulous. Um, you know. All right. Tell me a little bit about your work with Roberta Flack. You did Reverend Lee with her. Reverend Lee, she said, said, Lord knows I love you, child. I will not even place God above you. Reverend Lee was very, very special. Donny Hathaway was the consummate orchestrator. He was a great orchestrator. And uh, uh, Roberta and Donny uh, went to the same uh, university in DC, Howard University, and they knew each other. And Donny was the kind of orchestrator that he would notate everything that he wanted you to play. And he always made sure when we first met he would say, Chuck, because he knew my reputation to be free. And so he would say, Chuck, before you do anything else, do this, pointing to the music, do this. And I really don't need anything else. Okay. I was very upfront about that, which I understood. Remind me to talk about Richard T. I can say it now. Richard T was different. Richard T was a very great orchestrator also too, but Richard and I lived together in New York and he knew me. And when he came to a session and he was the arranger, he would come up with the paper and he would put it down and he said, Chuck, the chord changes here, play what you want. If you have a problem, this works. Okay. Whereas Donnie would say, before you do anything, play do this first. And so Reverend Lee, I kind of like Reverend Lee because that part of his line, he wrote it. And I enjoyed playing it, except for the little interludes at the end of an eight bar phrase where I play chords, uh -huh. you know? But he allowed me to do that as I've been working with him for about maybe a year or so. 
he allowed me to do that. Very moving thing. Uh, I love what he wrote. I don't think I would have come up with anything better. You know, and that's some the baseline sets off that song. You know, uh, so that's about what I can say about uh, Reverend Lee. What about working with Roberta? Was she in the studio with you? Oh yeah, Roberta was like Carly Simon. Um, Roberta, Aretha. There are a few singers, songwriters, Marlita Shaw. The were when you're in session with them. They play, they're playing, they play. So Roberta always, a very good piano player, by the way. Uh, she can play well. Always very easy to work with and get along with. I was in her band for about three years also too. And of course, when you're in somebody's band, you have situations that come and go, but I was in her band for about three years. It was a pleasure working with her. A pleasure working with Roberta. I think she was one of the greatest artists ever. And I think she had two of the greatest hits in the 1970s of anybody. Just spectacular. Mm. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your time with Quincy Jones, because you, we got a couple of songs that you did with Quincy. One is Summer in the City, which is not the Love and Spoonful version. This is a different one. Also going to play a little bit of the street beater which is that theme song that's so cool from Sanford and Son Q is a big guy in your life. I know you played in his big band. So tell us about your experiences with uh, Quincy. Well, that's how I got to L.A. Eric Gale and I have played on uh, his album, Walter Matuli, in New York. <clears throat> and um, Eric and I were also, too, playing weekends with Roberta Flack. Eric was also in the band with, with Roberta when I was there. And so Quincy, I forget who the agency was, but this particular year, I uh, put a, 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 a short tour together with Quincy Jones and Roberta Flack. Although I don't, they were not on the same label, that's for sure. But anyway, um, a great opportunity. Eric and I were in Roberta's band. Eric and I also recorded Guadalupe with Quincy. We were living in New York and uh, the tour started in LA, as a matter of fact, it never left the West Coast. I think we may have done maybe four or five dates with the big band and Roberta Black. Quincy's band, half the musicians were New Yorkers. And of course, Eric Gale and I were New Yorkers. But when the tour was over, I decided to stay in LA. Whereas half the band 
half of Quincy's big band, they returned back to New York. Eric went back to New York, but I stayed in LA. So you kind of moved there, you're saying? Yeah, because of that tour. Now I was still working with uh, Aretha and Roberta at the same time, but Aretha only worked every now and then. And Roberta Flack basically, basically was a weekend warrior. She just worked on the weekends because her band, all the musicians in her bands were studio, studio musicians. So they were working during the week and they had their weekends free, you said. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so Quincy, of course, when you go to, Quincy was at the top of his game at the time. Name value was very high. And by me living in LA, being with him and in his band, of course, I started doing the sitcoms that he was doing, which uh, Sanford Son was one of them. I started doing films that he was doing. The new guy in town with Quincy Jones. So it kind of helped my career in LA. Of course, you know, these artists don't work every day, but still they do projects over month by month and stuff like that. Right. So that's how I got to LA through Quincy Jones. Very easy to work with. He never notated anything for rhythm section players. Unless it was a uh, an ensemble lick that will go with the orchestra. Other than that, he'll always just let you play because his contractor hired people that had experience in the recording industry as hired side players, which you play something to make a formula or a format so that whatever it is that you play does not just seem like a whole bunch of whatever. You, am I making sense? Sure. I understand. He was trusting you. Oh, yeah. Because studio players, that's what we do. That's what yeah. we do. We play something to make like maybe, to make it feel like or sound like maybe you wrote it. <laughs> but just to make each verse sound the same, and then maybe a bridge different, and maybe the interlude different, but to make it sound organized. Right. Which I kind of think that helped the people that I came up with in New York do a lot of sessions, do a lot of work because we thought that way. A lot of times it's easier just to make something up than it is to read something that may be difficult. Sure. So did you have a personal relationship with guys like Quincy and Roberta, Aretha, or was it strictly a studio relationship? Well, it was, it was both. It started out business. Of course, you're with Aretha so long, we end up being a social relationship. Quincy, a very close social relationship. Roberta, maybe not so much social, but she was involved with her band all the time. In other words, she did talk to us a whole lot. We did have a social thing. Aretha was very quiet and she had an entourage around her in a way made it almost impossible to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with her. But she was the kind of woman that would have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with you or your wife because we were family, you know what I'm saying? I see. Uh, so these relationships end up being political, social, and business, you know, it, it ended up, especially when you stay so long. And yes, and you were dealing with her both in the studio and then playing live with her as well. So you had a more engaged relationship with her. Right, vacations together, families together, you know, and stuff like that it ends up being social. That's nice. You know, because, uh, you know, as, as uh, the audience gets to see these performers just when they're performing 
and they don't really know what the whole studio life is like that you're describing. But when you hear the combination of, you know, the business part and the social part, it, you know, casts a light on these artists that's a little bit different than I think people are interested in that. They want to know, you know, what was Aretha like? What was Roberta Flack like to work with? Mm. Well, Roberta was very interesting. She was a consummate performer. She played the piano well. Very delightful. I, I miss Roberta. I miss her. Um, I miss Aretha too. Yeah. I miss her a whole lot. Yeah. But I was very fortunate to have this kind of relationship with these people. I can imagine. Well, listen, you know, you've had relationships with so many others. We have one song more that I wanted to get to. You did something with Lena Horn. You did a, a, a song, Watch What Happens, which is a very different kind of song than some of the others that we've played so far. And Gabor Zabo was, I think, on that track as well. Start believing in you. Let him hold out his hand. Let him touch you and watch what happens. Want someone who can look in your eyes and see into your heart. So tell us a little bit about your experience with Lena and that track. Well, Lena Horn and my mother were friends at one time. And by knowing that, and by with Harry Belafonte, I went out with, with, with Harry Belafonte, and she was the featured artist, so I knew her. We knew each other. I think this recording, though, was before I traveled with her. Anyway, Watch What Happens was probably the first jazz record that I played in the recording studio where it was like, I, there she was a jazz, her and uh, Zabo, uh, that was the name of the album, uh, Lena and Gabor. And Watch What Happens was swinging style. And I'd always listened to upright players in that jazz swinging style. Uh-huh. I've always emulated whatever I got a chance before I started doing studio work, to play the sound like a uh, acoustic bass, an upright bass, a, a more of a dark, thin sound rather than the clicky sound that a lot of the uh, the uh, electric bass players were sounding like. Right. So my sound was to be, I like all of Quincy's records because the bass fit in the track perfectly, uh-huh. almost like an upright. But when it got to watch what happens, of course that wasn't an orchestra. I was very, very proud of that, uh, Robert, and that it, 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 it felt good. I got a lot of compliments. A lot of people thought it was Ray Brown until they looked on the inside and saw the liner notes. Yeah. You would never know that that was your first jazz thing because it just sounded so natural for you. Well, no, I had, been, I had played a lot of jazz uh, when, when I was in King Curtis's band. And also to a lot of supper club gigs the way you gotta play pop music. So I played live a lot of jazz, but on the recording, that was the first time I got a chance to really hear and feel uh, uh, you know, the uh, the bass in that genre. Uh-huh. I, I'm still thinking about it now. I, I listened to it last night and really enjoyed it. You know, I was going to ask you about that. Do you listen to the stuff that you've done? Do you still like to go back and, and go over it? Since the pandemic, yes. <laughs> 
But before the pandemic, every now and then I would bother. You know, like my last seven years uh, before the pandemic, I'd been in a band with Marlena Shaw. And I uh, did a record with her in, um, in LA many years ago. The record is called, Who Is This Bitch Anyway? <laughs> and it was very, very popular in Japan. Very popular. So the rhythm section, the original rhythm section that recorded that record, we've gone to Japan with her for the last seven or eight years before the pandemic to play the billboards in Osaka, Blue Note, and Fukuoka. So I do remember and that gig was definitely a uh, a pop jazz gig because Marlena Shaw is known for jazz. Right. So I really enjoyed that great band. David T. Walker, Harvey Mason, myself, and uh, Larry Nash. You know, it's just a thrill being able to walk and pretend to be an upright bass player. <laughs> uh, you don't have to pretend to be anything. You're the real deal. We have been speaking here with Chuck Rainey, one of the greatest bass players of all time. He's played with everybody from Aretha to Roberta Flack to Quincy Jones, the Jackson Five. There's others that we didn't get to. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I want to thank you so much for doing it. Well, it's my pleasure, believe me. My pleasure. Every time Elliot, anytime Elliot calls me and tells me about anything, it's worth it. <laughs> Talking about Elliot Randall, a mutual friend of ours. He's a great, great player and a great person. Thank you so much. We're going to listen now to the song that I had playing of mine underneath the introduction. It's a song that I did with my band a few years ago called Catch You Later. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.